Hello and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, we are on uh, continuing to deliver you the sound of your city. We have Saren Kaster in the booth and we have uh, Hostetter and Hostetter in the studio. Yes, we are only going by our last names now. Yes. The the news today is is quite breathless. Yes, exactly. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's difficult out there. It's hard <laughs> out there. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be covering. Uh, we'll be doing. Uh, we'll be having. We'll be joined by Lauren Latour uh, shortly, and uh, we'll be covering uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, once again. A sort of update on that. There have been a series of actions across. Yes, across it's, it's the, one of these uh, issues you have to keep looking at because yes. it uh, is a standoff. Well, exactly. Yeah, and it uh, just sort of the tensions just rise until they are either violated or we come to some sort of glorious nation-to-nation agreement. Yes. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, that's the, the kind of thing where if you look away, the, 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 those in power are usually the ones who want you to look <laughs> away. So we're going to come back and cover some of the things like that um, and have that conversation. We're also going to talk about sustainable farming. Revolutionary farming. Revolutionary farming. Is that what we're calling it? That's what we're calling it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of an old article. It came out last year, but a, a, friend, of, a friend of mine uh, who actually started a, a small farm uh, in, in Ontario shared it uh, recently. And, and so that's what brought to my attention. And it was interesting that sort of he's the kind of my one I go to on, on, on understanding sustainable farming. So the fact that he agreed with this article sort of uh, pushed very it into persuasive my understanding. Article. Exactly. It's, it's quite good. Um, and, and we believe we do now currently have Lauren on the line. You do. So exciting. Wonderful. Amazing. Happy New Year, Lauren. Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, we can, so we have, then we'll go into some stories about uh, ocean heating in the second segment mm-hmm. uh, and how that's affecting different, different animals. And then uh, Stefan's going to rant about uh, the madness of the contemporary setting. Yes, and then I'm just going to get really mad for the last segment, mostly, um, uh, mostly about uh, the failures of our corporate uh, media uh, and then our failures of the Alberta government trying to control uh, are the media narrative. Mm. Uh, that one's not mad. That one's more funny. I also have something about Johnny Shortfingers, Mr. Trump, as well. Right. Johnny Shortfingers. So, uh, but let's, we... let's jump in, yeah. Okay. So we'll begin with a brief update on the standoff between the Wet'suwet'en Nation and the Canadian law enforcement, whose job it is to continue taking their land in order to build a natural gas pipeline. The Unistoten Solidarity Brigade put out an email yesterday stating, quote, Actions have been going off since CGL, Coastal Gas Link, was evicted from Wet'suwet'en territory, and it has been beautiful. Your organizing is playing a critical role in supporting the demands of the chiefs and holding back the full force of the RCMP. Climate Justice Toronto occupied the office of Deputy PM Christia Freeland in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en on the, 20, on the 20th and are asking people to call her office to convey three immediate demands that the RCMP dismantle their exclusion zone and stand down, that nation-to-nation talks between the Wet'suwet'en chiefs and Canadian governments are scheduled, and that governments prioritize the full implementation of UNDRIP. On the 19th, activists blocked a ferry terminal in Swartz Bay, B.C., and on the 21st, 12 Indigenous youth were arrested blocking the entrance to the Ministry of Energy, Mines and and Petroleum Resources in Victoria for 18 hours. One of these participants, Colin Sutherland-Wilson, said that the B.C. Premier John Horgan, quote, is not treating the hereditary chiefs like a sovereign indigenous people who have never ceded their territory. He's treating them like an inconvenience and painting them in a narrative as dissidents and as protesters. 
Green Party leader Elizabeth May has recently said that Horgan should meet personally with the chiefs. Wet'suwet'en land defenders put out a call for legal observers from surrounding areas to come and be passive witnesses to the RCMP's expected actions. Uh, but this week they wrote, quote, RCMP have again changed the rules at their roadblock and have now stated that they will not allow any lawyers onto our territory who are not licensed in B.C. This is a clear attempt to target and exclude legal professionals with the Water Protector Legal Collective, who were invited into Wet'suwet'en territory to conduct legal observer training and help us keep the police accountable in the event that they, they invade our territory. They also write, quote, Contrary to recent statements of by Premier John Horgan, Coastal GasLink does not have its final permits to proceed with pipeline construction. Coastal GasLink is required to submit a report to the Environmental Assessment Office addressing the impacts of the project and its proposed mitigation measures. The report is incomplete, as Coastal GasLink failed to consider or even mention the Unistoten Healing Center. As a result, Unistoten has requested that the EAO continue to withhold final permits for construction. Solidarity actions across the country continue to be requested. Yeah, so I have, I have a thought about sort of Horgan's failure in this and and a brief uh, sort of update from actually Emma, who was on the last week's show, who did some of the reporting on this healing center and the fact that there was that was not included in the in the original assessment. Uh, but I want to, but Lauren, since I've, I've said a couple of words on this in the last couple of weeks, I want to go to you first. Yeah, um, I unfortunately feel like I'm not going to provide any hot takes. Um, here it's, it's, it's all going to be pretty standard issue stuff, but yeah, I think I, I feel like I just need to express my disappointment, not necessarily surprise, but disappointment in the response that the NDP has had to everything that's been going on, um, up at Unistoten, uh, over the last couple months and, and definitely the last couple weeks. I mean, especially, especially since, since, since the NDP government out in BC, said they were going to implement UNDRIP, said they were going to adopt it. And it's like, I'm sorry, what's the point in saying that you're going to implement UNDRIP if this is the response you're going to have to issues like this? Um, Singh earlier this week in an interview, and, and again, understanding that he is not the BC government, but he is still an NDP representative, said that this is something, um, quote, this is something that has to be decided by the Indigenous community, and I think that they should be supported to have these dialogues. And I guess what I would say in response to him is that if the decision to have the coastal gasoline pipeline go through Indigenous territory is something that needs to be decided by those Indigenous communities, then, like, you need to give them the space to do that. And that means doing as much as you can in your position of power to call off or influence the RCMP and get them off of that territory and stop them from doing raids. Because if, if you're saying that this is a decision that's up to those Indigenous communities right now, and you're also saying that there's some, some dissent and disagreement within those Indigenous communities, then you need to halt operations and give them space <laughs> and, and, and cease this violence and this terrorism that's being, that's being carried out on these people. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really, really disappointed in, in a provincial government that says that they treat these communities with respect and says that they're going to be upholding UNDRIP and then turns around and, and allows stuff like this to happen. Yeah, yeah. To jump off that, that's sort of the the interesting um, response that and sort of failure to understand how this sort of ties into the rest of of, of world building as a, not a great term, but what I sort of mean is that the fact that it seems like you cannot get even Horgan, you know, which is a level of you know an NDP government uh, in in a more progressive uh, progressive province 
to to understand that or to, or to even open up the concept of an imagination where a world could be different enough that the response would not still do to be this primary primary um, you know capitalistic response. There's it's it's interesting that I feel like. We, it speaks to that, uh, that we're still missing something here um, with with sort of our modern with our leaders right now that they 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 still somehow seem to be trapped in paradigms that that have that no longer serve us um, and have never served many people um, and, and I would say maybe never served us quote unquote depending on who you mean by us but like I I think that the the what's interesting is is that even in you know even with NEB government what you're getting is you're still seeing sightsee dam moving forward you're still seeing uh, you know these sort of pre- pressures on for for this LNG pipeline to get through and yet um, you know and yet they're more than happy to sort of make this case that that oil is you know, that that you know you're going to stand real strong against Trans Mountain um, and yet you know these other cases remain somehow totally okay and to me it's it strikes me so. So specifically, as you have not yet, it, it feels like it's it's still somewhat a it's still not actually changing the underlying patterns that we're seeing. You know, it might be changing some of the top line stuff, and might be even you know getting somewhere a little closer to to a place where more people can live can live can live a life that's not you know of you know the, 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 the state can do more to help um, people indirectly. But there still seems to be this lack of imagination about what an actual change of the world can be. It strikes me similarly to, you know, the idea that here in, in the city of Toronto, you know, we can be going on about transform Toronto and this huge need to shift in climate, and yet the concept of tearing down the gardener remains totally unreasonable. You know, it feels like we're still trapped in, you know, in BC, we're trapped in these sort of colonial narratives. And here in Toronto, we're trapped in these sort of car-based narratives. But it still feels like there's, we have not gotten f- out of a of a of a of a space yet, um, yeah, and I'm sort of absolutely. waiting for a leader to get us out of that sort of headspace, and it's, it just hasn't hasn't doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, no, I've, there's there's still such a such a devastating lack of vision and lack of imagination um, from from our leadership. So. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what else to say on it other than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and uh, and it's, it, I will also note quite quickly, and I think we'll, I would like to come back on this. The the the, the, the healing center is actually a uh, is an important note. There is a bit about this fact that the, that the healing center was not included in the environmental assessment, and and uh, I, I I won't I won't uh, I don't have the exact quote here, but in the conversation I was having with with Emma previously, um, as we were leaving the as as we were leaving here last week. She was stating that during the research of this, there was a moment where she was talking to someone. She was like, if this had been a, you know, had been a had been a settler, uh, you know, building, would it have been included? And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, for sure. And it's like, okay. Well, that's well. Then you know. Then we. Then this has to be a part of this conversation. You know, if you if like it, this is a real. You know, this, if it has the impact on this healing center, then and it was not included in this assessment, then it has to be. You know, there that, that is. You know, forget the. We don't for, obviously don't forget, but I think there's like there's layers of of sort of hypocrisy here. You know, there's the, the idea that UNDRIP has to be fully implemented, and yet you know who actually controls this land remains in contention, and yet the idea is no, it's 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 this way. Um, and in the, in these complicated scenarios, I think to go back to your point, Lauren, uh, in these complicated scenarios, I think the answer would is to give space and time for the people involved to actually have this conversation. You know, like if this is a conversation that needs to be had, then let's set up space to have this conversation. And no conversation has ever effectively been managed when you are surrounded by the RCMP. 
Exactly. Yeah, that is not the place to have this conversation. Or when you're not even meeting eye to eye. Well, exactly. Yeah, Morgan's not even ref- is, is not even going to talk to them. And, and and his point was basically, I don't see why I need to waste our time. And it's like, okay, so if your decision is made up, then then why then you know then there is not even then the whole you know we're not, we're living in a fallacy. We're living in a, a make make believe world. Yes, if if your decision is already made, and it and it was it was sort of a note I made for myself just around like we need to stop saying that we prioritize consultation because yeah. you're not going to take that consultation into account. If, if you're going to consult somebody or say that you're going to consult somebody, you have to be prepared for them to say no. And when they say no, that means you have to stop. Like it's, it's almost like if you were to break it down to like a really basic level, it's like it, it's consent culture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you're going to engage in, in any sort of relationship <laughs> with, with anyone, whether it be a governing body or an entire community or an individual, you have to be prepared for that person to say no and then respect that no. Yeah, the C word they were looking for was uh, uh, coercion, <laughs> not <laughs> consultation. It's coercion is the word you're looking for. Right, right, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, that does not show up in Endrip. That's not a, that's not part of it. Um, but okay, uh, well, let's let's move on to sustainable farming. Yes. So we will, of course, continue to follow this as the weeks continue. But now we move to American farmer Chris Newman who wrote a short essay on his Sylvanaqua Farms blog last year, in which he argues that if small sustainable farmers want to pose a real threat to extractive corporations and initiate a shift to regenerative agriculture in the United States, they must reject the romance of rugged individualism and team up together in large former farmer-owned co-ops. He argues that farmers' markets, while still great culturally and ecologically, will never in themselves allow small sustainable farmers to compete with industrial farming. Newman calculates that the 100 vendors of one of the farmer's markets he sells at spend a combined $585,000 a year to participate in terms of fees, staffing, prep time, fuel, and vehicle maintenance. And since most of the vendors participate in at least two markets, they spend a total of over $1 million a year for markets that are not open every day or for very long. They're also likely outdoors, making them vulnerable to all kinds of fluctuations. Instead, that money could be spent collectively on a large indoor market that could be open all day and all year. He writes, quote, As much as I like farmers' markets, the amount of resources that small farmers pour into them is terribly misdirected if we're serious about mounting a real challenge to the conventional food system. He argues that small private farmers work themselves into the ground in order to maintain their independence, But as they stand, they are failing to halt the corporate consolidation of the food system. In fact, he states that the extractive agricultural interests, the ones who do the most damaging kind of farming, are counting on their competition being exhausted, underfunded, and blinded by a myth of independence. Extractive agriculture is so profitable that it attracts a huge amount of private investment, while the ethos of private sustainable farming bogs it down by unnecessary uh, inefficiencies. Newman links to a Twitter thread by crop scientist Sarah Tabor in which she shows that a large influx of small fruit and vegetable farming is an indicator of major land inequality in which land barons hoard a huge amount of the land while skilled farmers are forced to tend small pieces of it. Thus, a movement of small, of, of a movement of small cash crop farming is thus a symptom of a major problem rather than a solution to bad farming practices. Tabor reaches a similar conclusion to Newman, arguing that we should do, quote, big, diversified, employee-owned farms, whose model is actually proven to build working-class wealth and push land barons back. 
they work. We just don't talk about them because they don't fit the American Gothic mold. They're mostly run by Hutterites and Native Americans, which is a big part of why Native and Hutterite farm operations can face so much hostility from neighbors. They actually pose a threat to dynastic land ownership. And as Newman writes, quote, America's oldest farmers, indigenous people, generally regarded the soil as a commons and worked it cooperatively. Many indigenous nations, along with a number of religious and ethnic communities, continue this practice to this day. But the notion of the private farm, be it a pair of greenhouses or tens of thousands of acres, is what came to dominate American farming. Therefore, Newman says that small, sustainable farmers should combine their land, expertise, supply chains, and financial resources into a co-op committed to producing food regeneratively, responsibly, and ethically. This includes things like treating employees like human beings, not destroying the land, and not torturing the animals. He argues that this would majorly decrease production costs, their market share would grow, wages would rise, new farmers would find it easier to get started, sustainable farming could become a viable career for people of color, farmers wouldn't be forced to diversify their products, and farmers could operate at whatever scale they choose. He writes, quote, The point is these farmers would no longer be alone. We'd present a united farmer-owned interface to the rest of the world. Suppliers, customers, landlords, regulators, media, etc. That at present, each farmer is left alone to handle. It's that isolation that makes us weak and ineffective against incredibly well-resourced competition. Farmers would, of course, have to give up some autonomy to join such a co-op, and they would be accountable to the rest of the co-owners, but they also would no longer have to do everything themselves, like leasing, purchasing, insurance, taxes, regulatory compliance, customer relationships, marketing, research, technology, bookkeeping, staffing, etc., etc. And the government isn't needed to solve this issue. Small farmers could come together to buy land and collectively increase their power. Yeah, so there, there were a couple, there was a there was a graph in this uh, that I thought was in the, that was quite illuminating, which was comparing the number of farms, the land operated, uh, and then the value of production. And basically, small family farms, however that's defined, are 89.7% of the farms, only 48% of the land operated, and then only 24% of the value of production. Mm-hmm. And so and so it's this, it's, it's, it, it just sort of goes to show you just how you know, despite numerous the actual percentages are, that it, it quickly falls off on how much actual land they run, and then even less in actual how much space they actually run. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I want to go to go to you, Lauren, first. Yeah, um, I really, really loved reading this piece um, and sort of thinking about these things uh, because obviously, as soon as I think within the first paragraph or two, he uses the he uses the phrase farmer owned cooperative, and I was like, yes, on board, totally here. <laughs> Any anything that uses the word cooperative, I'm I'm down for. I'm more likely to shop at Next because of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, and sort of where my mind immediately went is is that one of the reasons that something like a farmer owned cooperative network or, or system hasn't been adopted earlier. It, it's a number of reasons, but almost at the root of it um, was because of sort of like literature and theory that came out in the 1800s around sort of this concept of the tragedy of the commons and why communal um, ownership or, or communal stewardship doesn't work. Um, and, and, it, and it was a theory that was put out and posited and, and further adapted and, and sort of harnessed um, in, in the 19th and, and 20th centuries. And, and, and we know now that, like, that's, that's a fallacy. That's a myth. The tragedy of the commons isn't a real thing, but it's so permeated sort of, I don't know, our, our, our intellectual landscape that it was taken to be gospel. 
and it's and it's I guess for people that might not necessarily be familiar with the term tragedy of the commons, it's, yeah, it's the idea that sort of co-ownership of a space or co-stewardship of the space re- results in in that space growing fallow and being abused um, because humans apparently are intrinsically incapable of, of sort of communal ownership or communal stewardship or taking care of, of, of a space together. And that any time we're, we're allowed to do so, it, it, it'll go to, it'll go to a word I can't say on air. Um, <laughs> And anyway, yeah, that, that, that's the fallacy. Um, and the only reason that we sort of came to think that way is because we, we came to adopt capitalism as, as the absolute paradigm that we operate within. And that and sort of the only way that we in the Western world, at least settlers in the Western world, have a relationship with the land is through private ownership of that land. And that that's sort of we've locked ourselves into this way of thinking. And anything that sort of goes beyond that or is an alternative to that is different from that is really, really hard for us to wrap our brains around. So when you hear something like farmer-owned cooperative, you're like, well, how is that going to work? I'm going to do work. I'm going to I'm gonna till his land. I'm going to wake up in the morning and, and milk his house. And it's like, well, yeah, sometimes he'll do that for you. And, and that's how managed land ownership works. Um, so, so it, it, yeah, I kind of ended up spiraling into this rabbit hole around, around um, tragedy of the common theory and why it is garbage and how it's gotten us into the problem that we're in today and why this solution that this farmer has put forward is such a fantastic one and is being sort of adopted and explored by a lot of people and it also i don't think he actually mentions it but like is such a fantastic way to arm the agricultural industry against um companies like monsanto and Bayer, which are now the same company that that own seeds and patents on life forms um, because in that sort of community model of, of farmer co-ops and, and agricultural co-ops, it gives them a power against those large conglomerates that they don't otherwise have. Yeah, yeah. And if anyone – I remember reading some significant critiques of uh, of the tragedy of commons. And if anyone's read like – because like, it, it's a, one of those examples of these things where like some British guy wrote at one point on some very small study that never would have made it through any type of peer review now but remains in this thing because – Honestly, some British guy wrote it, then they went around and took over the whole world. Well, it's a thought experiment. Well, it, I believe it actually was based off of some particular land in, in the UK. Mm. But it was one particular example. They were like, look, they keep building fences. And you're like, that's okay. It's it's like the boiling frog thing. It's a it's a useful image, but it's not literally true. <laughs> yeah, and 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 yeah, and, and the example he had was so in a particular experience that it doesn't you know the idea that this one moment it, it goes everywhere that that somehow that makes it true. Is, one person finds it in their self interest to extract a little bit more. Yeah, and everybody must follow suit and so forth. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, um, but I, but I, but I wanted to get back briefly just to the fact that what I think I like about what I, what a what I liked about this was that. I appreciate the way that the the article writes out sort of the the thought process behind it. I think the, 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 it is actually quite a refreshing way to write about a problem, which is just sort of like here are the things that I'm doing currently, here are the ways it's not working, and then here is a way that we could tr- potentially try to solve this. And it and it struck me as such a you know if the if such an actual su- suggestion to a real problem. And in one that could be articulated, like, 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 I feel like when we talk about things like the Green New Deal, it's very hard to break it down into examples, which is sort of why I like some of the work the Postal Union's doing in Canada, because it's like an idea that sort of is part, could be part of that whole process that you can just plug into it, their community power plan. 
task. And mm-hmm. and and this to me feels like yet another example of okay, if we were going to make uh, you know a a revolutionary change to our society, this could be an example of how you might go about supporting small farmers in that change. Um, and especially in America right now, where small farmers and 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 he and in the piece he very effectively articulates the the fact that we are so stuck in this paradigm of small farmers being being everything and being being the most important thing and, and being a p- backbone of America and and yet you know the fact remains most small farmers are are growing basically just corn um, or soy and selling it to the government uh, because the government has to buy it because of these massive food bills and and so there's really not a lot of options for, uh, for, for, for people to get into agriculture beyond some of these sort of specific ways. And this offers such a f- refreshing opportunity and different way of thinking. And it's just like, you know, like, it, like, I feel like so often we're just saying things aren't working. You know, so how many times have we done a show mm-hmm. which is basically just like, this is why all of the parts of agriculture are failing. And it's nice to have like a, we could do it differently. <laughs> Here's an example of how, and they're doing it. Like, you know, this is a real farm that he is running that, that they are working on a co-op model that is being launched. Like, that's a real thing that's happening right now. Um, and, and to the point where like, I'm pretty sure he spells it out in bullet points. Like, yeah. it's that easy to break down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I highly recommend people to go read this article, um, and it will be on our website. Um, and and just to give yourself, honestly, there's just a bit of this refreshingness to be able to be like, we could be di- we could live differently, and here's a vision, and it's it's just nice. Um, uh, we're gonna go to music break in a second, but any last thoughts, Lauren, before we go? Yeah, um, circling back up to to what's been going on at West Wet and Minnesota, if people do want to support. Um, but you don't necessarily have time to go to a protest or, or fly to BC to help, um, you can donate. And the website, I'll, I'll spell it out for you, so get a pen. It's uh, unistoten.camp slash support hyphen us slash donate. So unistoten is spelled L, uh, uh, spelled, sorry, U-N-I-S-T-O-T-E-N dot camp slash support dash us slash donate. Amazing. If you want to financially support them. Thank you very much. Um, and of course, also consider calling uh, uh, Freeland as well, which uh, which you can find out more information about from Climate Justice Toronto. Uh, thank you so much, Lauren. And we're going to a music break. Saren. This is uh, Canadian Anishinaabe singer-songwriter uh, Leonard Sumner. Uh, this will be Best of Me. What's the purpose for my birth? I feel so lost and nothing works. Uh, see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I can't walk another mile alone, my the Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city or one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. Lauren Latour has left us now, but we are still here. And we are now going to move on to a new study that has come out uh, in the journal of <clears throat> PLOS One, which shows that the strange deaths of an estimated one million seabirds five years ago uh, can now be traced to an attenuated heat wave in the Pacific Ocean. The story began when 62,000 dead, dying, and emaciated common MERS washed up on the beaches from California to Alaska between 2015 and 2016. 
Because bird carcasses very rarely make it to the shore, scientists estimate that a million murres actually died, an event which the lead author of the study, John F. Piat, labeled biblical. The study reads, quote, Die-offs and breeding failures occur sporadically in MERS, but the magnitude, duration, and spatial extent of this die-off, associated with multi-colony and multi-year reproductive failures, is unprecedented and astonishing. These events co-occurred with the most powerful marine heat wave on record that perished, uh, that persisted uh, through 2014 to 2016 and created an enormous volume of ocean water from California to Alaska with temperatures that exceeded average by two to three standard deviations. This is what these scientists think happened. The prolonged heat wave thinned out the phytoplankton and lowered the calorie count of zooplankton, meaning there was less nutrition for the small fish who eat them. At the same time, the higher temperatures increased the metabolism of the small fish as well as the large fish, meaning everyone was needing to eat twice as much as they normally do, even while calories had run scarce. Thus, the heat made the larger organisms hungrier and the smaller ones less nutritious, leading to more competition for the birds who need to eat over half their body mass every day to thrive. The researchers write, quote, These bottom-up and top-down forces created an ectothermic vice on forage species, leading, them, uh, leading to their system-wide scarcity and resulting in mass mortality of MERS and many other fish, bird, and mammal species in the region during 2014 to 2017. Indeed, the multi-year heat wave killed not just the birds, but many other species, including sea lions, puffins, and whales. The mer population have yet to recover, and scientists found that at least 15 colonies didn't produce any offspring between 2015 and 2016. Sabrina Shankman writes for ICN that it was the biggest marine heat wave so far on record, and that in the past 25 years, these marine heat waves have doubled in frequency, and that it was caused by four compounding factors. These are global warming, a recurring pattern of atmospheric variability, a strong El Nino, and a strange blob of warmth that had formed from the interaction of different air pressures. John Piat stated that this is a red flag warning about the tremendous impact sustained ocean warming can have on the marine ecosystem. Climate, environmental phys climate and environmental physicist Thomas Frolicker told Shankman, quote, if we follow a high greenhouse gas emission scenario, these heat waves will become 50 times more frequent than pre-industrial times. A low emission scenario, consistent with the Paris Agreement, would still see 20 times more heat waves. What that means is that in some regions, uh, there will become permanent heat waves. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 we're, there's another story right after this that we're covering that has a very similar, that talks about, that goes in deeper about ocean heat, ocean heat. But I want to just quickly highlight that when you hear some of the criticisms of, you know, like in the general media that exists, you know, when you get, you still get some of these people sort of coming out and being like, you know, I think earlier this week, I think it was the CEO of BP or something said that Greta Thunberg should go get an economics degree if he was going to listen to her or something. And there's just, whenever you get these types of responses from people who don't want to deal with it, um, and then the last segment we have, a, we have a, of a story similar that has, that comes from, uh, a, a writer from the National Post or Financial Post, where we have a similar question uh, of someone just basically coming out and saying nothing. And the I, I'm struck by the fact that okay, I'm struck by the fact that the um, the there's just is not 
a the difference between what kind of research has been done to allow us to understand that the global warming is happening versus the level of understanding of, the, of people who are sort of saying we need more information is that this study uh, or conversation about these about these gulls or these these murs sorry you know this is one incredibly small part of this an overwhelming set of data from people from all across the world um, responding to the overwhelming under feeling that we just do not have enough time to actually cover every way this is impacting. Like the, the fact that is like the, the, mm. the fact that climate change is happening is is so widespread that you know this is this is one person walking around a beach and happening to find this thousands of dead animals mm. and it tracing back to this problem. And that alone feels like it should be could could take like that's that small story could at least you know alone feels like it's a uh, you know worthy of 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 our time, and yet it is just it's it's just one microcosm of what is going on, mm-hmm. and I think it's that that is that is so disastrously confusing for me. It's that it's the fact that like you know this is just one moment that. Uh, that does not sort of parlay into into his understanding of 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 how vast the amount of data we have is about what's happening, because it's impossible for edu- science educators and for environmentalists to be able to convey the actual reality of how much information we have that feeds into this under our understanding. Um, and then you try to do it in the FPCC, and it feels like it's one report, whereas like it's not. It's it is it is thousands and millions of events like this one that permeate the the globe. Yeah. Well, you had you had um, many people finding birds. Right. It was going from California to Alaska, so you had different people finding all these carcasses, and then one scientist had to be like, mm, "I think these I think these are connected." Yeah. Yeah. But let's let's move on to the to the second story. So a, a new study in advances in atmospheric sciences is showing that ocean temperatures are continuing to accelerate um, past uh, their record highs. As 2019 saw the warmest oceans yet recorded, uh, being 200... Do we have... Are we good? Okay. Uh, 2019 saw the warmest oceans yet recorded. Uh, being 228 zettajoules above the uh, 1981 to 2010 average and 25 zettajoules above 2018. For clarification, a zettajoule is one sextillion joules. Uh, The total heat energy absorbed by the oceans over the past 25 years is the energy equivalent of 3.6 billion Hiroshima-sized bombs, according to ICN. The amount of heat we are still adding to the oceans, uh, according to The Guardian, is the equivalent of every human being running 100 microwave ovens constantly. As the study notes, over 90% of the excess heat our greenhouse gases are creating goes into the ocean, and they therefore provide a good measure of the long-term and unequivocal warming of the planet that we're in the midst of precipitating. Such warming causes the heat waves uh, of the kind we just discussed on land as well as in the water, but it also kills coral reefs, feeds storms, and breeds toxic algae. As the study concludes, quote, increases in ocean temperature reduced, uh, reduce dissolved oxygen in the ocean and significantly affect sea life, 
particularly corals and other temperature and chemistry sensitive organisms. The increasing heat increases evaporation, and the extra moisture in the, warm, in the warmer atmosphere nourishes heavy rains and promotes flooding, leading to a more extreme hydrological cycle and more extreme weather, in particular hurricanes and typhoons. This is one of the key reasons why the Earth has experienced increasing catastrophic fires in the Amazon, California, and Australia in 2019, extending into 2020 for Australia. It is important to note that ocean warming will continue, even if the global mean surface air temperature can be stabilized at or below 2 degrees Celsius in the 21st century, due to the long-term commitment of ocean changes driven by greenhouse gases. Here the term commitment means that the ocean and some other components of the Earth's system, such as the large ice sheets, are slow to respond and equilibrate, and will continue to change even after radiative forcing stabilizes. However, the rates and magnitudes of ocean warming and the associated risks will be smaller with lower greenhouse gas emissions. Hence, the rate of increase uh, can be reduced by appropriate human actions that lead to rapid reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, thereby reducing the risks to humans and other life on Earth. A co-author of the study, John Abraham, told Bob Berwin of Inside Climate News that it is, quote, critical to understand how fast things are changing. This problem is not going to go away. It is getting worse. But the problem is solvable. The first thing we need to do is use energy more wisely. Let's not waste energy for no reason. Let's make our cars, homes, and workplaces more efficient, and in the end we will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and save money. Abraham is also quoted in The Guardian as saying that the data we have is irrefutable, but we still have hope because humans can still take action. We just haven't taken meaningful action yet. Yeah. And, and so it's, this is, again, this is an example of just the pure breadth of, of scientific knowledge and research that comes into these things. And I think the, the one thing that you mentioned there about the speed of which it's happening is important to, to bring back the one concept that we've talked about in the show before, but I just feel like it's important to, re to reference, which is this idea of uh, geologic time and time scale, because the, the fact that, you know, that you see that in a lifetime of a human, it can feel like the warming is happening relatively slowly or, you know, that, you know, that the sort of the emergency level and the warning levels feel out of sync with how quickly we're actually experiencing the warming. And, and I think that that can make you complacent, you complacent, sorry. And so the fact that we're looking at when, when these types of scientists come out and say it's happening really quickly, what they're talking about is if you look at how often warming or these other things ha normally happen, mm. it is over thousands of years, you know, tens of thousands of years. And, and so in those types of timescales, the animals and the creatures in the, in the world that exist and the nature that exists is able to adapt to these changes. But when you're talking about only a few generations of some you know, some things, or, or even less, you know, that then there's just not the ability to to change. Which is hypothesized what happened with many other extinction events in the past. Yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. It's just the speed at which things are changing in a in a context of what we you know of, of geologic time. And I think that, that, that the fact that that's the time scale that the Earth is currently acting on, that the speed at which things are happening now are, is, is, is lightning quick in terms of geologic time. And I think that's a super important to note. But let's go to a, to a music break, a uh, quick thing from Sarah and then a music break. 
Yeah, sorry. Um, so just on the, uh, because this is related to something I've been talking about for weeks now, the, uh, without, but without taking a bunch of time and going back over it. So we talked, you were talking a minute ago about like all this certainty, right? Like these oil executives um, saying, uh, you know, being really condescending and insulting to Greta Thunberg. This is normal, right? Like this is how the people in the establishment and people with power talk to people who don't have power, who are complaining about it. And so the comparison I need to make is the one to with without getting overly sidetracked is into the realm of like white privilege right which is the idea that if every single day you ex you don't just not experience the absence of your privilege you experience every day with the amount of privilege that you get that's your baseline so if no one ever gives you any other experience you're it's the the thing that's natural that happens to people is not just simply say i have privilege and i've never been had a lack of that, it's natural, even if wrong, to say there is no discrimination. I've never experienced it. It's personal because that gets reinforced for them every day. So this CEOs and these people, Justin Trudeau, all these people with power, the, the, the BP guy, a lot of people go along with them because of the psychology of certainty and power. People in authority, people with uniforms, people just conform to them. So there's all this certainty, all this borrowed certainty that people take from these leaders because of their absolute certainty, because of their scoffing, right? So what you have to do, that's why I keep coming back to this. You're not trying to convince the CEO, but there's so many people who get their certainty because look, this billionaire, look how successful he is. He says this and he's so, he's, it's so silly that this person would know. And it's so silly that he doesn't even, it doesn't even deserve a response. And so people absorb that emotionally, that that is the appropriate response is to scoff at these people. So that's why you have to take them on and you ask them to prove it because they have assumptions, base assumptions around which there's calcified certainty and they've never had anything break it because within the confines of their universe, those things are true. The only thing you can do is force them to prove it. You get them attention, you you force them to respond to you, but you don't, assert your arguments you force them to prove theirs and they're gonna laugh and say what are you talking about go get a degree and they're like no hey i'm stupid explain it to me because it's all certainty it's all bluster and it's all bs and so that's what you do when you attack those people when you take down the guy the ceo of bp this is the last thing i swear when you take down the ceo of bp and you get him on there and you you demonstrate to people publicly this person is expressing certainty and they can't back it up who cares if you change his mind because there's millions of people that are borrowing his certainty, and that can be eroded. Hmm. Now you get to have your music. Great. <laughs> they came in ropes. They came with guns. They came with words from God And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5. FM or one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. We are now going to turn to three stories of uh, pure, unabashed, self-righteous, self-serving wonder. Wonder. Wow. This is, well, I guess it's wonder in the more, in the more grandy, one wonders. I like that. Okay. One does wonder. Yes. So as Donald Trump uh, continues to spin the Republican Party around like hideous little marionettes or spineless finger puppets perched on the scummy ends of his short orange digits, having them spew their nonsense bile over the Senate floor as they hop around mimicking toddler tantrums over the most basic processes of a fair impeachment trial, we can't forget the environmental regulations they are also always trying to dismantle. 
Just as a new study is showing that tap water in 43 American cities is contaminated with cancer-causing toxins, Trump is removing protections for waterways and wetlands, <clears throat> which allow people to dump uh, will allow people to dump toxins directly into streams, and allow developers to destroy wetlands for their projects. His administration is also uh, now proposing to greatly narrow environmental reviews of pipelines and other infrastructure, totally taking climate change off the radar of such reviews. <clears throat> If it goes through, it could, as Trump's new Interior Secretary David Bernhardt put it, uh, effectively uh, affect virtually every significant decision uh, made by the federal government that affects the environment. Bernhardt is in favor of the proposal and is a former oil industry lobbyist. As uh, Marianne Lavelle uh, informs us for Inside Climate News, <clears throat> the proposal states that environmental effects should not be considered significant if they are remote in time geographically remote, or the product of a lengthy causal chain. Lavelle writes, quote, The proposal, in essence, would fulfill a wish list delivered to the White House last fall by 33 industry groups, led by the American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who complained of unreasonable costs and long project delays caused by the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. And yet, as 95% of all actions subject to NEPA every year, are already exempt from any kind of detailed environmental review. It is conceivable that the courts would strike the proposal down since the NEPA statute, as brought in during the Nixon administration, states that the government has a duty to, quote, use all practical means to fulfill the responsibilities of each generation as trustee of the environment for succeeding generations. Yeah, so this is just yet another example that while we continue to exist in this world uh, of, of absurd destruction that the, Donald, that the Trump government has managed to do, it is not to be undone and perhaps the most long-lasting damage that he will, that he will create other than perhaps you know, beginning the demise of the, of the American, uh, or not beginning, but maybe pointing the, being a, a moment of the beginning of the ex- maybe more material demise of the United States government. Mm. Um, the remains, the, the some of the other more insidious stuff, I actually think could have uh, a longer term impact than, than some of his more blustery things. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of number of Republican courts, Republican judges that you, they've managed to put up, uh, the complete destruction of the EPA, you know, the amount of space that they've opened up for drilling across, you know, across, uh, across the states. There's, I, I feel like there are so many stories that cannot get covered properly because of just how unbelievable the, the actions are. That it's like you know the 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 blatant destruction and ripping apart of the American Constitution is a relatively good way to hide a whole bunch of other crummy things that you're doing to to support other people's corporate interests, mm. um, and so it just goes on and in, 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 on and on and on. And I'm not sure if I have a larger thought on that. Well, it's a quick lesson on the idea that you know honor will override people's self-interest and corruption. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's really simple. I mean, the entire American system w- failed because it was counting on the assumption that a corrupt criminal wouldn't end up being the president. Right. Yeah. Right. Like it, the entire thing was pre- like so like all these things like, well, how how was Donald Trump able to do this? Well, it's just people just didn't think that was a thing that you would do. Well, That's well, literally it. Well, or that they thought the Senate would do something about it. You know, they thought if if you did get someone, you were not going to get someone who then was also entirely given free reign by everyone else. 
So just keep that in mind the next time someone says, trust us, we've got this under control. <laughs> uh, let's go to the next story, because the next story really grinds my gears. So corporate executive, <clears throat> corporate executive and trustee of the Fraser Institute, Gwyn Morgan, published in, uh, uh, earlier this month a very self-righteous and apathetic article for the Financial Post, in which she argues that Canada needn't be acting on climate change because we represent a small fraction of global emissions. He starts off by giving misleading information from NOAA, implying that they predict a global warming of 2.4 degrees Celsius by 2100, data which he provides no citations for and appears to be uh, towards the optimistic end of NOAA's predictions and fails to take into account the already drastic indicators of the fragility of our ecosystems. He then implies that Greta Thunberg is the only reason climate change is a major issue and states that she is terrorizing young children before launching into the hideously classic holier-than-thou old white savior man rhetoric about how it's all really Asia's fault, uh, but that we can help poorer countries be less dirty by selling them our natural gas. Finally, he plays the corporate victim uh, with some conspiracy stuff about the systematic destruction of the oil sands and Quebec's ungrateful attitude towards Alberta. He also argues that we should get rid of the carbon tax because it's not high enough, and essentially that nothing we do will be uh, will be enough, so there's no point in doing anything. Yeah, this is, this is just an example of, A, it's absolutely atrocious reporting. It's not even reporting, to be honest. It's not. It's a it's propaganda from uh, from an industry that doesn't want to do anything and supported by a corporate media that apparently has decided to not care whatsoever about any type of factual basis for their opinion pieces. Mm. You know, it, again, it's the, the, it's not being billed as reporting, and so it's not like it has to follow journalistic standards. However, there were some blatant, unbelievably blatant failures from the very beginning of this article that just, that just were an example to me of how little care anyone did to even begin to question this man. <laughs> like the in the first article in the first paragraph he says or second one first or second paragraph he goes out and claims that Greta Thunberg inspired extinction rebellion which is a Extinction Rebellion started months before Greta Thunberg even began striking. Extinction Rebellion was co was created by a series of activists who had been working on this issue for a long time and was begun with a note of 100 academics supporting this. Does he mention any of that? No. He decides to take on the fact that, that what is basically an ageist and sexist attack, deciding that you can be belittle a, a teenage girl much easier than you can belittle anyone else. And so using her as a scapegoat, he goes on this tirade about which, which in the premise of the article is that we as Canada are are martyring ourselves and yet never anywhere in this entire piece does he provide a single shred of evidence for anything that he is saying he, he claims that 2.4 degrees is not a is not a, a, a climate emergency, and then you go to NASA is explaining the difference between 1.5 and 2. And in NASA's description, one of the things that uh, that it warns about between the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. Again, this is not even the 2.4, which he has stated is not an emergency. NASA says that the, to allow it to get to two degrees would, would create, quote, the complete loss of coral reefs in our oceans and an additional 1.5 to 2.5 million square kilometers of permafrost thawing, which would irreversibly releasing the stored carbon beneath it. Not an emergency. 
Why? Because this old man decided to say it wasn't an emergency. And uh, all, all, all based on this concept that we apparently, Canada right now, is doing too much to, to, to try to solve climate change. Again, with absolutely no evidence. And if you go look, and I was like, I was kind of curious. I was like, okay, like if we're if we're talking about uh, how much Canada is doing, I was curious to see how much we would actually rank um, in response to other nations' efforts to try to reduce carbon. I was sort of, I was like, let's like you know, let's. I'm sure someone has done this work, so let's find out how bad, how good at martyring our economy we're being. And the climate, challenge, the climate Change Performance Index, which rates, I think it's about 65 or 66 countries um, on, on how well they are doing um, in, in, in combating climate change, gives, puts Canada as, uh, as 55 out of 61 total. So we are the 55th worst country dealing with climate change out of the 61 they, che- they checked on. And they include all they, the ones who are beating us include China, who's on 30th, India, who is ninth, um, in which in the entire bit piece, his whole point is that they are the ones who are causing the problem. And so it's like it's this one of these examples of like you can to go back to Saren's point right before the break it is literally an example of someone who has been so never fact-checked that he can write a piece like this and none of it does he have to like he doesn't have to even mention the fact that anyone is calling on anything else and he focuses specifically again on attacking you know a, a teenage girl when you have the fact that Mark Carney is out here going on saying climate change has to be focused you have the head of BlackRock who mentioned last week saying climate change has to be a focus both of whom are a much bigger threat to divesting in the um, in our oil economy than Greta Thunberg ever will be Greta Thunberg does not manage trillion dollars of assets these men do if you're going to complain about someone who is threatening our Canadian economy, it is the people who control the money who've decided that Alberta is not worth investing in anymore. And yet, Canadians are constant. This, this type of response is so constantly centered around this, and it's just it's journalistic malpractice. There's a book that I think nuts. most people had to read. I think at some point, literally about this. This is defined manufacturing of consent. You don't, this is how, exactly, no, I don't mean any hyperbole. This is how brainwashing works. You just keep repeating something as an assertion until people accept it. And that's what we're getting. That's what I'm saying. And thank you for, for backing that up. But that's what I'm saying about, like, don't get into an argument. Don't say, no, 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 here's my facts. And I'm not saying with your friends, but like on TV, we need people getting on TV. Get the BP exec here. I don't care. Get their, get some spokesperson here. And get them to explain it to me because it's all BS. It's all vapor and smokescreen and, and a blind assertion backed up by the fact that they're making billions of dollars off the rest of us in the meantime, which makes it very easy for them to get confused. We have to call them out. I'm just I'm going to be on that for a while, but you just got to get them out, get them out on stage and say, explain it to me because this doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and there's no facts. Right? That's the thing about it. Is Sorry, uh, what, I was, what I was thinking yeah. to say at the beginning was that they're attacking Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. not they're terrible people, but that's not why they're attacking her. They don't hate children. They're attacking her because they don't have any other arguments. Right. People need to understand that. That is their best argument. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so so speaking of trying to manufacture consent, Alberta is spending $30 million trying to do it. Yeah, so um, we'll take a couple of minutes now to uh, laugh at Jason Kenney's $30 million publicly funded war room. Uh, against environmental activists, uh, which Chris Turner points out for the National Observer, has gotten off to an absurdly fumbling start. They uh, released a video 
saying that Canada Canadian oil brings us more healthy babies,、uh, more healthy mothers, more wisdom, more opportunities, and more joy. The War Room's founding director Tom Olson also accidentally called it a crown corporation, while it was actually specifically made a provincial government organization in order to dodge freedom of information requests. It also turned out that they stole their original logo from a software company. They used a stock photo of a dog and claimed it belonged to one of the founders. And a Vancouver chef ended his association with them after he learned that employees were calling themselves reporters rather than government workers. Olson also、uh, slipped and accidentally said to Global News that the war room was about disproving true facts. <laughs> yeah, that was a really good one. I really liked. I really liked that big bit of classic doublespeak. The my so one of the more fun things to do、uh, on Twitter these days is to watch climate justice Edmontons、uh, back and forth with、uh, with Jason Kenney's war room because、mm. it is.、Uh, I believe as last I checked,、uh, climate justice Edmonton, which Which is, in their words, a a thing literally run by teenagers.、Um, it currently has more followers、uh, than than Jason Kenney's thirty million dollar war room. And most of the response, most of the work that is work, I put in quotes, being done by the war room is just attacking these teenagers. Like that is so far the major output they have had is that the people who've worked for them. Are go on Twitter and attack these teenagers, and that is what they are paying thirty million dollars for. Like it is, it is such a, it is such an example of such a complete waste of money that, like, as a, as a, as a, when when you're in, when you imagine the idea of fiscal conservatives deciding that what they needed to do with thirty million dollars was create an online presence to attack teenagers who are their own citizens, like these are people who live in Alberta. <laughs> like that—that's the best way to spend their money as they slash services across every across sectors. Like this is why you're unpopular because you're just doing bad things. Yeah, slapping people in the face and then telling them it's for their own good. Yeah,、uh, that's all the time we have for unfortunately. But、uh, thank you so much to our、uh, listeners, and、uh, we'll be back next week. Have a good green one. Take care.